I'm Charlotte Hawkins and welcome to Last Past and Blast. Each week we'll delve into the musical lives and memories of a different guest and each guest will choose three pieces of music. Their last, which is the latest piece of classical music they've been listening to. Their past, a significant piece of classical music from their life. And a blast, that's their wild card, so keep an ear out for guilty pleasures with that one. Together we'll explore the way music has shaped their lives and what it means to them. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Grammy-winning Scottish violinist Nicola Benedetti. We spoke about how music brought her to tears when she was just six years old, how she's not the classical musician sat in the corner but is the first one up on the dance floor, plus how she coped when her violin kept slipping off her shoulder during a performance in 40 degree heat. Here's the episode. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you on my podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Oh, now we're going to be talking all about music. And for you, it's obviously a huge part of your life. If you had to kind of sum up what music meant to you, what would you say? <laughs> and impossible question <laughs> um, that's a good one to start off that, with that, isn't it <laughs> that has a has an impossible answer because it is all-encompassing in the fullest sense it's not a thing separate to life or to experience or to emotion or feeling it is a clarifier if that's a word it can reflect what you are what you think how you feel it can enlighten you all the time, show you things you could otherwise not see. And more practically and simply for me, when you've been doing something uh, like playing an instrument, making sound and melody and rhythm out of an instrument from the age of four, I quite actually can't remember my life before that. So that has a, you know, another level of intimacy and just like it's inextricable from my my being. <laughs> I love that. So take me back to you as a four-year-old then, because when did you first come across music? You know, did you hear it at home? Was it your parents? When did you first think this has got something special for me? I was fairly oblivious when I began. I wanted to copy everything my sister did. She wanted to play the violin desperately. And we were in a musical household. My parents listened to a fair bit of pop music but um it was very kind of entertainment focused like if you wanted to have a good time or dance or whatever that pop music would be on but we weren't sort of an active listening household in terms of like sit down and listen to music we never did anything, anything like that so it was really my sister that led the way I happened to take to playing very quickly and very um it had an impact really young. I think for parents that were not used to that notion, that idea of music in such a serious setting being so impactful for somebody so young, I was brought to tears when I was, you know, six years old to music. So I, I think it was probably a little bit surprising for them <laughs> and a bit sort of like what's actually going on. But I really have my sister to thank for that relationship I have with the violin. I, I'm not sure I would have started it if it hadn't been for her. And was it always classical music or was it any kind of music at that age that appealed to you? I don't know how discerning I was really, but I would get into a sort of, this is all, you know, parrot phrasing from my mum, but I would get into something like a, a kind of trance when I was playing or learning a piece, which was always classical music. And I think I would go into something of another world. And she would al always say that I was kind of this like, you know, scatty sort of like running around doing what kids do. And then when it came to playing, I was, I was in another sort of space I think like my mum always loved good singers and big ballads and like Whitney Houston and people like that. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, she would listen to that. And I guess I, I always tell people that if they're unsure about exploring into other styles of music or 
types of music that they're not used to be around somebody who really loves that thing and you you sort of feel their vibrations and you can start to see how to love something through feeling how they love it so yeah I definitely picked up a lot of that from my mum but my relationship to classical music was my relationship you know that was that was personal to me. And I mean, parents up and down the country will be knowing the scenario where they're saying to their child, you have to go and do your practice, make sure you've practiced. For you then, did you, was it a natural thing? Did you just take yourself off and practice? Or did your parents have to say, look, if you really want to do this, you've got to be serious about practicing the whole time? I think it was a mixture of both. I sort of like what I was saying about that trance. I think a similar thing was true regarding practice. I wasn't always the one to go to my violin to practice, but once I did, I could be there for a couple of hours at a really young age. I remember, you know, the biggest insult of my life was my mum saying to me, well, like when I was complaining about practicing, well, you don't have to play the violin at all. Like if you're going to play, you have to practice. And she just had that sort of principle that if you do something, you honor it by trying to do it well. And she lives by that in every single way, <laughs> um, whether it's like cleaning a sink or, you know, playing the violin. If you're going to do that thing, you do it well. And I was like so insulted by her question that perhaps I, I didn't have to play the violin. Like the fact that anybody could even suggest such a thing was so hurtful, which I guess I remember that moment so clearly. I was maybe seven years old at the time and it has stuck with me. You know, it was like a, such a decisive moment of, oh, okay, so actually this is me choosing to do this. And I'm so hurt by the prospect of it being taken away. That it could be a possibility that you wouldn't play the violin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And for you, has it meant a lot of sacrifices? Because obviously it takes an awful lot of dedication of hard work day in, day out from a young age to get to the level where you've got to. I mean, I have really specific singular memories like a day that one of my best friends was having a birthday party my teacher was playing a concert and I had to prepare, you know, I had to do some kind of practice thing and then having to decide what to do. And those moments, you know, a sacrifice that you really feel as pain as a young person because you're desperate to go to a party and you're making that choice. And generally speaking, it, it was a choice, you know, it wasn't an enforced thing from my mother down to us, you know, you must choose this, not that. But I regularly made those choices to be with the violin and to try to progress and to improve. I didn't want to go to a boarding school. I didn't want to leave home. I did not want to be away from my parents or my sister at the age of 10. I was extremely homesick, cried a lot. But at that age, the idea of somebody telling me and giving me all this information about how to be able to play better and being surrounded by all of these musicians that just were making this phenomenal sound and doing all of these things on the violin, that was a stronger force than the fear I had of leaving home. And how was that feeling when you first started performing? Because I guess it sounds like for you when you were playing the violin, it was an intensely personal experience you know you talk about going into this trance in your own world does that make a difference then when you're stepping out on stage and you're sort of inviting other people into that world that's a really great question because it's something we contemplate a lot is what space do you occupy when you're playing are you protected in a circle where it's you and the music are you in a space of communication and interaction between yourself and the audience are you in a space of interaction, perhaps just between you and the other musicians that you share the stage with? And I've struggled with that a bit, actually, because um, I'm very hypersensitive of my surroundings. And therefore, for me to absolutely block off and maintain that kind of protected space is very difficult. But it's meant that it's been a strength for me to, to communicate directly with people and you just have to kind of keep playing with those different dynamics and seeing what produces the most powerful performance and the most visceral music making. But it's not always straightforward. You know, it's not always an obvious this is better and this is worse. You know, it's really different for everybody. And what about those sort of pre 
performance nerves or the butterflies you know i don't know for you whether you had that that sense of anticipation whether you'd still have it now before a performance because i guess when you're performing you know you need to have a steady hand don't you oh yeah and i have experienced all levels of nerves and total calm confidence and everything in between you know it's something that I've had uh, varying sort of levels of intensity in my relationship to thinking about and we all go through these types of things where it's a sort of self-analysis and you feel like you're making progress through assessing something and identifying it and actually sometimes a good old kind of distraction or just writing it off as not important is actually more helpful, more beneficial. I talk with students a lot about that. I mean, fundamentally varying levels of performance anxiety. Of course, it's a really difficult thing to do. And then you're doing it in a highly kind of scrutinized environment. Of course, the majority of people are there to have a good time and to enjoy what you do. But you're often sharing the stage with people who know every single note that you're playing and know exactly <laughs> what it should sound like. And, and we also live in a profession that's a really strange combination of, you know, being artists and creators and, and embracing individuality. But actually there's so many do's and don'ts. There's so many expectations. There's so many things that people have been used to hearing for the last a hundred years that are expectations now. And if you do something unusual or out of that norm it can be jarring for people and it's less pleasurable so it's something that I kind of often dream up big campaigns you know to encourage people to to readdress how they listen and what they expect not just like a nice pretty little predictable package that's delivered perfectly but actually one that is really looking at the combination of that singular person that's on stage who is unique in their voice and their expression in combination with the voice of Beethoven and the musicians sharing that stage with them. And what can, in that very specific given moment, the combination of all of those elements sound and look like, and that we get all the listeners to actually join us on that journey of looking for something unexpected, of something that's shocking, of something that's not just different for the sake of it, but different for the sake of it being authentic and true and weighty in that given moment. But yeah, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> As you can tell, I could go on talking about that for a long time. Know, but it is fascinating because, of course, particularly with classical music, you've got the traditionalists who like everything. As you say, you know, they recognise every single note. That's how they like it performed. But to a certain extent as well, you want to breathe new life into these pieces to push the boundaries. And I guess that's sometimes, well, quite often, isn't it, where the greatest performances come from with that individuality. Absolutely. And it's to find the authenticity in the individuality. But so much of our development is through imitation of some kind or through an exploration and an experimentation. And we're never quite sure where the lines of authenticity lie. I think some people don't discover that until they're really of a much older age where you feel, I mean, a lot of people describe that. They feel like they've come into themselves and they could be in their 60s, 70s, 80s. I think hearing musicians who really have lived through so much talk about their relationship to music can be really enlightening and really inspiring. I was listening to an interview of um, the fantastic, well, fantastic doesn't cover it, legendary pianist Rubenstein recently, and he was talking about how deep and overpowering his love and connection to music. He said it's as if he feels overawed by the essence of love when he's playing and what that is is an overwhelming sensation and it's so true and so full in that moment and I think we all are just trying to get to that place but trying to please your surroundings and being aware of your peers and what people expect and what people want you know it's that's a it's a really complex game to navigate and how how do we become our truest selves you know we have to be so fearless and so 
assured and and so driven by a certain ideal that um, it takes a lot to be in that place. I can imagine. I mean, it sounds like a huge amount of pressure when you you step out on stage there and you know that all eyes are on you. What have you had any? mishaps have you had any times when things have gone wrong that you've had to then think okay what do I do now oh of course (laughs) (laughs) you're prepared to admit to (laughs) oh yeah no absolutely I mean um no you you can't do hundreds of concerts thousands of concerts and not end up in that position sometimes and uh, that is a part of your embracing of of live performance otherwise we could create little perfect packages in a recording studio and send them out and let that be that but um the live performance is so thrilling and so exciting because there is an element of risk in that performance and that should be the case for everybody on the stage and everybody in the concert hall and again I'll never forget seeing these just utterly horrendous uh like blog posts about a performance that a pianist, a Korean pianist gave in Korea. And he had like, he had a memory lapse in the middle of the piece. And there were streams of people saying, this is not what I expected. And I want my money back because I expected such and such a thing and it wasn't delivered. And I just thought like, like how, like, apart from the fact that from a human standpoint, it's really mean to do that. Um, Forget that, like from a more philosophical standpoint of what you are entering into a concert hall and entering into that relationship with the person on stage, with the musicians on stage and with that music to take any potential for risk out of your desire. You know, like you, you don't even desire for something to, to, upset your experience you know it's just the whole perspective for me was so skewed and so upsetting and and so absurd but you know probably more people would agree with those bloggers than they would with me and I mean I've never luckily had any experience on stage where I've had to like stop or apologize or you know I there was one time actually where I um anybody who has tried to play the violin or the viola knows that quite often we use a little bit of apparatus that keeps up the instrument and it's called a shoulder rest and I had been playing for a couple of months without a shoulder rest as many violinists do it's just a case of preference what your body shape kind of can adjust to with the instrument and I was in a situation where I was in Philadelphia doing my debut with the Philadelphia Orchestra and the fantastic conductor Christian Machilaru and I was playing Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto now that concerto is one that has like you play for 10 minutes and you don't put your instrument down at all and it's fiendishly difficult you're running up and down it's just like one hurdle after another but it's an amazing piece oh totally but the rehearsal on that day was cancelled and the performance was not and we were in Philadelphia all of the other orchestras had cancelled their outdoor performances it was in the summer because the heat was too high and the humidity was too high it was like above 40 degrees and humidity was at some ridiculous percentage. So no rehearsal. We just went out there cold, cold as it were, not cold. (laughs) So the the perspiration just started to gather and I had never tried to play without a shoulder rest in that type of environment. And this instrument just kept, I mean, actually genuinely slipping off my shoulder The most, I mean, I was, I was, you can imagine like what that type of experience you're, I was just distraught, but there was, you know, obviously a very specific thing that was going on that I felt was largely sort of out of my control. And I'd been put in a position that was not really fair. (laughs) So what do you do? Do you carry on or do Um, you just say, oh, sorry, hold it, everybody. I've got to put the shoulder rest on. I just kind of muddled through to the end of that first movement. And then finally the piece there's a an ending of sorts and all the violinists it was the cutest thing ever I turned around and all the violinists in the in the orchestra were like handing me their shoulder rest to, to allow me to like actually regain some kind of um yeah so that was that's a good story <laughs> that's that a good is story. a good story I don't I mean I just don't I can't even imagine what that feels like I 
did play the violin briefly when I was younger, but um, it's a hard instrument to be a beginner on, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's it's not a great sound until you've got to a certain stage. <laughs> 100%. Every parent I meet who has a child who plays a string instrument, I just shake their hand in congratulations <laughs> because it's really not a straightforward beginning, unlike the piano, which is touched a certain way and it just makes a sound. The violin, all string instruments are, are very far away from that. But I would say, I say this to all parents and, and young people learning, really take your time with those beginning stages. Just try to be as patient as you possibly can with just feeling comfortable holding the instrument. Don't try to sound like anything. Just try to feel like your hands function in a certain natural way. You understand that actually to play the violin doesn't need muscle strength. You're not trying to grip the instrument like crazy. You should just be feeling somewhat kind of relaxed and calm, even though the instrument feels really convoluted and the position is so uncomfortable. Try to take your time with your, your physical relationship to the instrument should just be about feeling comfortable for those first couple of months. But in tandem, meanwhile, you can be developing your musical mind. You can be working on singing, on rhythm, on coordination, on reading music, on all of these things that you don't have to do with the instrument in hand. But yeah, I, th I think, yes, it's hard, but we do not make it easier in the ways that we teach young people how to play instruments. Mm. Well, listen, I know musical education and teaching is something you're passionate about. Let's talk about that in a moment. But for now, let's look at the musical choices that you've made because this is called Last Past and Blast. So I'm going to be asking you for the last piece of music you've been listening to, a piece of music from your past that's meant a lot to you and your blast, the one that you love to blast out, a bit of a wild card. So let's start off with Last. What's the latest piece of music that you're really loving listening to? Well, actually, we're getting together uh, shortly with some colleagues to read through some Haydn quartets. So I've been listening to a lot of Haydn quartets recently and just generally listen to a lot of his music, the creation and the seasons and his larger works, looking a lot at his time when he traveled to London and all the unbelievable output of music that Haydn created when he was here. And so, um, yeah, the quartets, of course, span a huge part of his output and sort of follow him throughout his life. Some quartets in particular that I'm kind of working on at the moment, but I've been sort of dipping in and out of so many of them. And it's, oh, it's just such a, just such an unbelievable world of creativity and of um, humor. Uh, he was somebody that no matter how serious he got with music, there was always some joke around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> And is the one in particular then that is one that you've got a lot out of that you've been listening a lot to? Um, yes, so I've been listening a lot to the Opus 77 F major quartet. I've actually been practicing it a little bit this morning, trying to get to grips with the form of the piece. A lot of Haydn's focus is on um, structure. So you are grasping a melody, but it's then fragmented so much, taken into different keys, developed in ways. And I think it's something actually, it's a sort of training that we're not used to necessarily listening to music in that way. We're used to listening to rhythm and melody, but to actually listen critically to structure and look at how structure can be pulled apart and kind of taken to its most complex state is a different style of listening. So to do that in an exercise through Haydn's work is, yeah, it's revelatory. And is it hard for you? Because for a lot of people, they listen to, I think, particularly classical music. You know, you switch that on, you relax, 
it sort of washes over you. But for you, it sounds like when you're listening to pieces like that, you're you're thinking about how you would play it. You're thinking about, you know, the structure of the music, where it's going, what it's saying. That's more of a, an interactive process, isn't it, than just sitting and listening to it? Absolutely. And it's it's fascinating to look at what a listener who's not a musician and not actively playing the music would would gain out of that understanding even just simple things of understanding that certain things are repeated or certain things are kind of taken and developed in certain directions or what when you modulate into a different key when you have exactly the same sequence of notes code of notes but they're taken down or taken up what that actually does to your emotion or to to your sound or if you end a certain phrase by going to a different chord what that does to your feeling I'm always undecided I think for some people simply a story that is more relatable and less musical analysis is more helpful in terms of helping them feel more about the piece but for other people they're so fascinated by the inner workings and the the um, mechanics of how music is made some people are so excited by that so I think it's always it varies and what about your past piece of music so a piece of music that you've known for a long time that means a lot to you uh, for that, I've chosen the slow movement of the Rachmaninoff uh, piano and uh, cello and piano sonata. It's a piece that I got to know at Yehudi Benjamin School. Oh, if you don't know that work, it's just, it's, it's just, some people don't love Rachmaninoff, actually. I know quite a few people who don't really like his music so much. I just can't, you know, when you love something so much, you can't imagine such a thing. I can't Someone imagine not, not knowing or liking it. Yeah. Um, but if you don't know his, his music, I mean, like, you know, a lot of people obviously know the piano concertos, but if you don't know his music so well, listen to the slow movement of the Rachmaninoff cello and piano sonata. It's like... Oh. I, I, I did like no words, no words I for it. I can see the effect it has. Well, it is stunning. And how does it make you feel then when you, when you listen to it? Oh, I'm unbelievably nostalgic, you know, just um, in that place that so much of what we call classical music occupies, I think, more brilliantly I would hasten to say more brilliantly than than any other style of music is is that confusing emotion that's neither happy nor sad. Brahms, Schubert, Rachmaninoff certainly. It sits in a place that you know when you see like a baby when they're not quite sure whether they're about to cry or laugh, and they're in that ambiguous state um like this type of music keeps you there in a way that just makes you it's like it it forces you to clarify things about how you actually feel about something but at the same time it's telling you that opposites totally opposite feelings are at play all the time and happiness is not what it is without sadness and and love without hate and you know, these, these opposite emotions that we try to constantly polarize and actually they're interconnected in a way that you cannot separate. And movements like this of, of pieces of music, they, they kind of force you to accept that and to deal with it. Well, it's really fascinating because I think, you know, for a lot of people listening to music, everybody gets something different out of it, don't they? But listening to what you're saying I think will make people think a bit more when they're listening to pieces of music, particularly like that, about how it's speaking to them in a sense, what it's what it's saying. It's not just the notes, it's not just the music, but it's the emotions that it's bringing out in you as you're listening to it. Yeah, and I think we can we can train ourselves without it being anything that's hard work or clinical. We can train ourselves simply to be more open. And I always say this about our music, about historic music, classical music, music that is most often without words, 
you have the opportunity to practice a deep empathy and to be in a kind of highly alert observant state so that you're really trying to just absorb what's coming to you and view it and be taken into that world that may not be yours. It's an issue that I have with so much pop music that I can't believe how sort of this is not like a musical thing at all. It's a much more personal thing. Can't believe how self-analyzing and self-absorbed it is. Like I went through this and I did that and poor me. And I, the, I think the best music for me is music that tries to tell a more all-encompassing story, a story that kind of involves more people and is not always just looking inward, but that's sort of trying to tell that collective story. And I think classical music can offer that to you, but it's, you have to step outside of yourself. You have to be looking for more than just you. You have to be looking for something that speaks to and speaks about a much grander story and larger story and more all-encompassing story. From what you said there, do you ever listen to pop music then? Are there times in your life where you think, do you know what, I want a good bop around the kitchen, so I'm going to put the radio on or, you know, put something else, put a bit of garage on or grime? (laughs) I don't know about those two, but um, no, I, I do. I do sometimes. I used to a lot more. I think it would be a rare occasion for me now. But like, I mean, if I'm in a circumstance where I'm with other people and a load of songs come on that I know, like I'll be the first to be up and dancing and having a great time. Like I'm, I'm certainly not sort of like the classical musician sitting in the corner, not joining in, uh, like not, not in the slightest. Well, that seems like a good time to move on to the piece you've chosen as your blast so a bit of a wild yes. card a bit of a guilty pleasure for you which one's this I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure actually it's a very <laughs> proud pleasure <laughs> um, but it was just a good um, memory of of mine my mum used to love run rig she still does Scottish band that would take yep. a lot of like actual traditional Scottish melodies and turn them into a kind of slightly more upbeat pop like interpretation of them and so they did a version of Loch Lomond and it kind of turns into a riff in the middle and there's a live recording of them you know it's a massive outdoor live performance and everyone's joining in you hear the whole crowd singing at some point it's it's um yeah, we used to enjoy that, like especially around Christmas time. We were like, you know, putting up cards and decorations. And my mum used to have all of these things just blasting around imagine. the house. Well, it's a stirring piece as well, isn't it? It kind of gets you going when you listen to it. Yeah, yeah. It makes you feel patriotic. <laughs> and talk to me about your heritage, because you're, you're kind of dual heritage, aren't you? Scottish and Italian. Yeah, I was born in Scotland, grew up in Scotland. I've always lived there. We would go to Italy in the wintertime to visit uh, my mum's family and my dad's parents and my mother's parents both lived in Scotland and moved there. I've been to Italy countless times to perform, to visit and love the country more than I can express. But I didn't grow up speaking Italian, which is, I mean, it's one of my biggest regrets, although it was not within my control to teach myself Italian when I was three. (laughs) Um, But um, it's interesting though, my mum's father was Scottish and his Scottish family discouraged her Italian mother from continuing to speak Italian to her four children. So my mum was an Italian speaking three-year-old, but when they moved to Scotland, all of that stopped which is tragic, really. And my dad came over alone when he was 10 to Scotland, didn't see his parents for the best part of a decade and and therefore also was not, you know, in an Italian-speaking environment. So he he's a good immigrant wanting to switch to his language as much as possible and sort of like Aww. trying to do all of these integrating things. And, you know, you look back now and I wish he had held on to and passed on to us you know more of that Italianness. but people you know view their journey in such a variety of ways and adapt and 
in such a, a variety of ways. And, and that was my dad's way of. I was lucky know. enough to sit next to your lovely dad <gasps> at the yes, Global Awards. Were. Yes, when I handed were. out the Best Classical Artist Award to you, which was, I mean, I was absolutely <laughs> thrilled to do that. And your dad was so proud to be there. What oh a night. Oh my goodness. Yeah, he was, he loved it. He absolutely loved, loved being there. I remember he arrived, arrived he flew in that day and arrived late he and did. it was a bit of a scramble. Yeah, but we, we got him there. <laughs> it was definitely worth him coming there for. And for you, I mean, I guess because you're traveling around a lot, you're performing a lot, have you got that pull, that kind of, I want to go home, I want to see family? Is it always a case of squeezing it in as much as possible? Yeah, I because I perform a lot in Scotland and have always traveled to Scotland to perform, it's been never, I mean, I ended up going to Scotland all the time and, and being in my home a lot. And my parents come to the concerts and stuff like that. But obviously during this time has been a little bit different. You know, you have a I think most people have something of an irrational love towards their their home and their home country. And I think I, I in some ways I have I have the best of both worlds. I get to go there a lot, but and do you know we do lots of mass educational events in Scotland and of course perform there. Get to interact with thousands of people, but I still have that slight distance where I can just every time I go, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is the most beautiful place on earth. I might not always be saying that if I live there. I don't know. <laughs> At least you could, when you go back, you appreciate it from that point yeah, of view. A hundred percent. Yeah. Now, listen, we're still in strange times at the moment, but you know, we went through a time that was locked down, everything ground to a halt, you know, for you, I guess you would have had a lot of things scheduled in that then had to change performances. And I know that you'd been working on something special in particular, hadn't you? The Benedetti sessions, your workshops that then had to take a very different form because of what happened. Yeah, of course, like all musicians, I had months of work cancelled in an instant and still not back to performing. But we kicked into extreme working mode within a couple of weeks of lockdown, putting on an online workshop in place of a physical workshop and had the most unbelievable experience of closeness with literally thousands of people from around the world, 66 countries, 7,000 people signed up. We had thousands more join in on YouTube and Facebook, you know, open platforms where we were putting out content continuously for three weeks that culminated in a final live performance. And yeah, it was, it was a phenomenal experience, more hours of work than I care to remember. <laughs> but actually since then we've been continuing to put on a lot of mini versions of those workshops. So we've had, uh, we sort of took apart every component. So whether that be, you know, creative responses to music or whether it be really specific technical things about playing string instruments or looking at how you know, rhythm and harmony work, whatever it may be, we've tried to kind of separate out all of those skills and create these little mini versions of these workshops that you can participate in for a week, two weeks, three weeks. So for us as a foundation, we always knew that to be able to impact and reach a lot of people online was always going to be key. And this actually just kind of gave us a bit of a fast forward in terms of actually making all of that happen and making it possible. It's been absolutely brilliant from the point of view that it's made it so much more accessible, hasn't it, for those people who who did want to take part. And I guess, you know, turning a negative into a positive, the sort of enforced shutdown, but it did mean that people were at home, maybe had a bit more time, maybe wanted to sort of you know, invest more into doing things like that for those people who, yeah, I don't know, I was playing more music, listening to more music yeah. because you just had more time available to do that, which actually can maybe be a special thing for people, can't it? I agree. I actually released a, a recording quite soon after lockdown that wasn't meant to come out for quite a bit later. And it was for that reason that I sort of pushed the early release because I felt like when we're all stopped in our tracks, you do question more and perhaps turn to those things that you continually say I should do, but then you don't do. Mm. Um, and you know, you want to do, but you just 
life's routine stops you. So I agree. I think there's been a lot of of people questioning their priorities and where their love lies and what things they too often neglect. And I think that's a wonderful thing, actually. Yeah, and looking at life in a different way. And I think also because for a lot of people, it's been a an anxious time, hasn't it? Whatever their circumstances yeah. are. And there are, you know, beautiful pieces of music that can actually just help you feel a little bit better, help give you that bit of escapism, getting away from it all when you listen to them. So actually the power of music to make people feel that little bit better can really help sometimes. I totally agree. I think I think not just the listening, but the participating in, I mean, what can bring people together more than that, you know, than bring people together in a way that, that ties you. It's different from just looking at something or listening to a certain song or whatever. It's, it's different when you're also, you have invested some sort of time and effort in something. And then the result is melody, harmony, a story, an emotion, like it's just a magical thing. It's a magical thing to bring people together for, for that combination of feelings. And I know you're you're passionate about musical education, about making sure that children have access to, you know, good tuition at schools to encourage them to get into music. Do you worry because of everything that's been happening that, you know, music is, is once again going to get pushed down that priority order? Oh, yes, but it's a fight that's been fought for a very long time and will continue to be fought. There's no question <laughs> about the fact that music is is one of the first things to suffer when everything is being tightened and when there's pressures on finances, on time, on resources. And it's funny because we're thinking of all sorts of things to be able to give to schools and do for schools before the end of the year, not just schools, but families and young people generally. Mm. And, and there's always that question of like, actually, you know, people just need to be focused on their schoolwork and not, you know, distracted by things and everybody's got enough to deal with. But it's like, if you imagine you're upset about something and then you try to do a day's work, it's like, the hardest thing in the whole world but then when that thing's resolved or you feel good about something and you feel hopeful you have suddenly solutions to problems and energy and ideas and a sense of I can do this and that exact same work goes from being impossible to not just being possible but to being a joy and that's kind of how I'm trying to look at this you know, from now to the end of the year, what can we do with music that actually just can make that switch for people that's like, oh, this doesn't have to be that bad. We can do this, like that sense of hope, energy. Yeah. So I think, obviously, I believe that music can do that potentially better than more powerfully and more substantively than, than almost anything else. It's just about finding the right ways to do it that's complicated <laughs> but actually it, it, there is something about getting in early as well isn't there you know I know with my five-year-old and I try to get her to listen to lots of different types of music you know she loves her pop music but she'll also listen to classical music as well but I'm trying to do it in ways that I think will appeal to her and not put her off but I mm. guess it's getting in early at schools to encourage yeah. children to love it in whatever form because I imagine I mean, is it true to say not not every person is going to have the capability to be able to play a musical instrument? Or do you think with the right tuition, everybody can? Or do they just have that, their own version of some sort of musicality? I differ with a lot of other classical musicians who will regularly say every child should be playing an instrument. And I I don't think that it's necessarily desirable for every child to play an instrument because if you're taught really badly just because somebody's teaching you that doesn't know how to play it it's not necessarily well it's certainly almost definitely not fun but it's also not necessarily teaching you something 
informative or positive. Whereas the larger question of the music, the, the language of music and the the concept of music, the way of listening to things that are longer form, understanding how different layers of sound can be put on top of each other and organized, the way that you can follow your ear and work out intervals and all of these things are really difficult to do, but I would say much more possible to teach successfully en masse. I would say that every child should be doing those things and to a high level. And I think we would be a much better nation for it. But everybody learning to play the violin, you know, I I would love to see a, a, a progression in violin teaching quantity and quality. I would love to see that. Of course I would. I think it teaches you phenomenal numbers of skills that are undoubtedly golden for a young person in their formative years. But I think that um, for every child, there are other things regarding the magic of music that we could teach successfully and actually deliver to everyone. I have a feeling like I didn't answer your question though. <laughs> it like went on on a whole right. tangent. Well, no, but it was a fascinating answer anyway. <laughs> Sorry. So I didn't worry about that. Okay. But do you think if you if you had a magic wand then and and you know the government came to you and said, okay, um we'll put you in charge of musical education in schools, you know, what what would you say would be the key? Is it making sure that the the teachers are the ones that are absolutely passionate is it is it getting more instruments is it completely rehauling how how it's taught in schools what's the answer do you think yes i would definitely do something of a like an overhaul of how music is taught to the majority of people i would i would take away a focus on even things like learning to read sheet music i think the amount of time actually let me rephrase that i would not discourage people from learning to read sheet music. But if we are talking about the experience that like genuinely the vast majority of young people have with music, I would bring in exciting, enticing, graspable, confidence building curriculum and criteria that could be given to a higher percentage of teachers in every single school, regardless of their musical training. And believe it or not, there are loads of things that someone who has never studied music before could learn and pass on to their students that would be informative, would be challenging, would be exciting, would be fun, would inspire creativity, would help with teamwork in the classroom. I mean, there are endless numbers of things that I have seen done successfully that are just not known. They're just not known. And, but, you know, musical education is not, is not the only area where there is someone like me sitting in deep frustration that it's not more prevalent amongst all schools in the country. I'm sure there are there's an equivalent view from scientists and mathematicians and all sorts of people in different professions that see how things could be taught in a more, not just friendly manner, but just a, a far more successful manner in a way that would excite and entice young people more and would just have a far greater impact in the learning of that, of that human discovery. So, oh, yeah. A lot could be done differently and a lot more could be done. We're, we're trying, we're doing our bit. Well, good for you. And I would vote for you. We'll wait and see whether you get that call to come and rehaul it sometime in the future anyway. Um, I also wanted to talk to you about, you know, because the, the things that you've achieved, I think, have meant that, you know, violin playing has really been made more accessible. I think for those people, you know, we talk about musical education, children might grow up thinking, oh, it just plays certain classical music pieces and that's it. Mm. Whereas actually, you know, I know you did your jazz recordings, you won your Grammy Award, for example, mm. you know, you've been in the top 20 of the UK album charts with uh, Homecoming, a Scottish fantasy, you know, it's really bringing it more to people's attention. And I think making it more accessible so is that something that's that's important to you using different styles of music to do that well I sit um somewhere in between those ideas because I think when you're including the word education it's okay to not 
be trying to appeal to young people in a way that is like you're feeding candy when you know that some vegetables at a meal is a good thing to do. And I think that when it comes to music, for some reason, we become very beholden to the the desires of young people, which we all know naturally if they're fed something that is as addictive as candy, has that much sugar and makes you feel so high for a very short amount of time, um, you know, is, is going to be where they gravitate towards and that actually it's okay to be saying we as adults are in a position of not just responsibility, but ultimately authority when it comes to what we choose to educate our children with. And I'm not fearful of saying that I, I I don't think that music education should be filled with things that have that kind of addictive quality to them. And the other point to that end is that really accessible music is just that. It's highly accessible and it's everywhere. And you can learn every pop song you want in the world by just clicking a button and listening. You can learn it quickly. Somebody at the age of five or six can know all the songs and all of the words to all of all of the, you know, top 10 songs unbelievably easily. So my question would be, why would you focus something where resources, expertise, monetary like investment have to be put in a certain area, why would you focus that on something that's so prevalent anyway? So I would focus that area of musical education on the things that are a little bit more difficult. That doesn't mean they can't be a beautiful mix of challenge and fun, just like maths can be a beautiful mix of challenge and fun. You know, it can, it's not for everyone, but it, it can really? be, you know, <laughs> but you know, it can be that, um, that thing that's a layer deeper than fun in its escapism form, you know, like, yay, just have a great time. No, it can be fun in the fulfilling sense. Like, wow, we achieved that. And that really sounded good. It wasn't that easy to do it necessarily, but it really sounded good. So I think musical education can just sit in a more balanced space. We don't have to be going straight to what every child listens to day in, day out in order to justify our necessity or conversely justify our popularity. I don't feel a need for it to be in that space. But at the same time, music education should not be something people hate. It should not be that. And it definitely doesn't need to be that. And let's face it, it really very much sometimes is that, you know, something people dread and don't want to participate in. And uh, so, you know, I have a nuanced perspective on those (laughs) seemingly opposite points of view. Looking at the situation for performers at the moment, for Mm. performance venues, it is a really worrying time, isn't it? Do you fear that they might be damaged irreparably. You know, are we ever going to get back to where we were? Are we, do you fear that we're going to see venues shutting down, not reopening, job losses in the industry, that it's going to be hard to get all of that back to where it was? If places can't open at all, or perhaps worse, they start to open with an expectation of revenue, audience numbers, also followable, clear rules that they know they can rely on staying as they were or staying as they've been presented, I think there is a very real uh, threat that places will not open. There will be hundreds of, you know, smaller venues, smaller groups, groups of musicians that were just starting out. There'll be so many already tragedies that we just don't hear about because we hear about the massive institutions Obviously, money has been apportioned to the first half of the the government's grant um, has been now made available for people to apply to. But the time that it has taken for money to be available will have been too long for some organizations. And Mm, I think we have we have a sort of strange arrogance that certain things cannot be allowed to fail and that may have been true for 
the banks in 2008, but you know, it's, it's not necessarily true for all arts and culture organizations. And I think the sooner we stop thinking there's a, a them and an us, but really work together as much as possible, the better it will be long term. But I have to say in my experience over the last couple of months, I've been trying very much to work with as many people as possible. It's not always easy. The, the doors are not always open to uh, real collaboration and kind of meaningful advice and guidance for those who are dictating where where money goes. Um, so it's it's an impossibly difficult time. Um, just recently, I, I did an interview and was then quoted everywhere about uh, saying, you know, that everyone has been incompetent and terrible management and all that kind of stuff. It was totally misconstrued as me talking about my own management, which I wasn't at all. They've been absolutely fantastic. Oh, no. um, yeah. But, and I think it's, um, I think that they're, there's a, a really difficult balance for everybody to strike also in that we're dealing with an unknown. Um, we're dealing with so many unknowns and movable, human, unpredictable, um, you know, nature-based issues. And I think there has to be the balancing of an understanding of that fact with a harsh critique on when you can see that it is a lack of organization or collaboration or talking to the right people. And it is incompetencies that have made, made the situation a whole lot worse than it should have been. And that of course, doesn't just exist within the music industry it exists all over the place. And, and I think, I mean, it's not a case of holding people accountable and this kind of suffering of those who did wrong and all that nonsense. It's nothing to do with that. It's about analyzing where mistakes have been made and and with immediacy, making better choices going forward. But it's a sharp learning curve for a lot of people in a lot of positions. It is. It certainly is. For you, how, how hard has it been not performing? How much are you looking forward to getting back to that? Because I know you've been busy with the education side of things, with running your workshops and everything. But do you have that feeling that you don't want to leave it too long before you perform? Because if you then get out on stage and it's been ages since you've seen all those eyeballs looking back at you, how how does that then feel if you haven't done it for a while? Yeah, I'll forget how <laughs> it feels. Um, no, I'm, I'm doing some things in the next couple of months, but not really to an audience. So I... I I don't know. I've been performing a lot since I was 14, 15. I'm not fearful of the return to that experience of performing for people. I'm looking forward to it. I'm for myself, I'm relatively relaxed about when that happens, but for the industry at large, I'm not relaxed at all. I'm very concerned. It is a worrying time, as you say. And you have achieved so much. You obviously have a clear idea of, of the things that you want to do, not, you know, obviously just musically, but with the education, with the teaching, with opening the door for, for others as well. What, what else have you got then? What's your plan for the next few years? Do you always have a set path that you're thinking, this is what I want to aim towards? These are the recordings that I want to do. You know, this is the, the plan that I want to have. Or do you just take each opportunity as it comes? I do have some plans, but they've been sort of railroaded during this time. And I'm, I'm actually trying to use like the next month or two as, as an opportunity to step outside of the box and treadmill that I've been on for a long time and try to see larger and see like, where can I actually be most impactful and back to where we started, most authentic. I don't know if I'm coming up with great answers, but I'm really trying. <laughs> no, that's fine. I was suddenly I was suddenly latching on when you said you were going to step outside the box of things. And I thought, is there something to come? Is she going to be on I'm a Celebrity? Or is she going to be doing Strictly Come Dancing? Oh, or? yeah, Renault. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. 
<laughs> we will wait and see in that case. Oh, listen, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Thank you. It's so lovely to speak with you again and have lovely oh, memories of you. that evening that we shared um, at I the know. Global Awards. And it's so wonderful that you're doing this podcast. It's just excellent. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm thrilled that you could join me. It was lovely to speak to you. Thank Thanks, you so Nikki. much. Take care. Thank you. It was so great to speak with Nikki. She's so passionate about music and education, but who knows, might we see her step out onto the Strictly dance floor or venture onto I'm a Celebrity next? She did say maybe, didn't she? So you never know. Well, this week, inspired by Nikki, I'm going back to my violin playing roots for my musical recommendation. Not that I could have ever played this one, but I'm listening to Lento from Dvorak's String Quartet No. 12 in F major, the American Quartet. piece it has such beautiful simplicity and a melody that just compels you to want to listen more if you want to hear any of the music mentioned today it's all available on the companion playlist just take a look at the link in the show notes if you like what you've heard in this episode then please do follow or subscribe to the podcast that way you'll be kept up to date each time there's a new episode this podcast is produced by Renee Richardson with B Duncan and exec produced by Chloe Murphy at Sony Classical I'll be back next week with a new guest to discuss their last past and blast. I will see you then. Bye for now.